I'm going to jump right into the message because um, I have a word that God's been cooking in my spirit for you guys for about six weeks, and I've got to get it out. So are you guys ready? Um, I wore, I wore my, my camo because we're on a mission. Um, it is go time, Pathway Church. And so this message is for, I knew I'd kind of be hitting the home crowd. This is the first weekend of summer. So you guys are our are, uh, are home folk. I know we've got visitors with us too, so you're not left out. This message will apply to anyone within the sound of my voice. But specifically, coming off of the message from last week, as I mentioned during communion, how many enjoyed nothing to lose last week? So Pastor Marty and I were sitting talking uh, baptism weekend uh, about his message this past week and my message this week. Neither of us knew what each other were planning on sharing, but as he told me what he had planned to speak and he shared with you last week, and as I kind of let him know what was on my heart for you guys for this week, we kind of laughed because it's very obvious that God has uh, a new level of authority and responsibility that we're supposed to take as a church, and this is the season for doing it. It's, it's time to go, Pathway. Are you ready? Let's jump into God's Word today. Are you ready for the Word of God? Um, you can go ahead and tap, turn, click to Nehemiah chapter 1, however you get there. Um, and today's going to be a little bit like Smokey and the Bandit. we got a long way to go and a short time to get there, so I'm going to ask you to buckle up and get ready, all right? Um, I want to kind of color you into the story of Nehemiah a little bit with some history, uh, kind of like Pastor did last week. We're in a similar window of time, a little further in the, t- the timeline of the Bible. But we know Solomon, David's son, passed away, and uh, he rules f- uh, for about 40 years until 930 BC. After he, after he passes away, you have uh, Rehoboam, who takes over the kingdom, but it's divided by Jeroboam. And so now you have the northern kingdom, uh, with the capital of Samaria, you have the southern kingdom, uh, like Pastor said, with sweet tea and sweet jif- uh, jiffy cornbread. Uh, that is now, uh, they have the capital of Jerusalem. And so the northern kingdom has a long history of really bad kings that do a lot of bad things. They disobey God, they worship idols. They're ultimately exiled by the Assyrians uh, in 722 BC, a couple hundred years after Solomon's reign. The northern kingdom is never heard from again. They're scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire um, and permanently deported into various areas. So you never hear from them again in the word of God. The southern kingdom hangs on for another 136 years before they're overtaken by the Babylonians. Uh, They have a few bad kings of their own that help lead to this. And then the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar uh, destroys the temple, knocks down the walls, and burns the gates of Jerusalem. 47 years after this happens, you enter the Persians. They conquer the Babylonians under Cyrus the Great. And in the first year of his reign, he was prompted by God to decree that the temple in Jerusalem would be rebuilt and begin to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem for this purpose. He was a very good king. Um, The first wave of Jews returns after a 70-year exile, uh, which was prophesied, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, led by Zerubbabel, and they're ultimately successful in rebuilding the temple. Then Ezra comes along and helps restore temple worship. Um, and the southern kingdom, uh, where we enter uh, the story today, we, we pick up with Nehemiah in 444 BC. So the temple's been rebuilt, um, but the walls around Jerusalem are still in ruins, and Jerusalem itself as a city 
is still in ruins. And so I needed to tell you why the temple was so important. So we, we think in this day and age, well, it's just where you go to church. In this era, uh, literally, this is pre-Jesus, remember, this is where the presence of God dwelled. So the loss of the temple meant the loss of God's presence. And so you kind of need to connect with how urgent this situation was with the people of Israel, that this wasn't just a church that had been burned down where they go worship once a week. This was literally where the tangible presence of God sat with his people, okay? Um, The temple had to be rebuilt for God's glory and presence to return to them. Uh, We'll cover the importance of the gates just a minute as we get into the story of Nehemiah. But since Cyrus the Great and the Persians took control, as we get into Nehemiah chapter 1, there have now been a few more Persian kings. And so we see Nehemiah now in the palace serving the sixth Persian king by the name of Artaxerxes I, uh, also uh, a good king. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, we'll pick up today. Are you still with me? All right, amen. You guys are. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, this would have been around November, December, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Han and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me and some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Aren't you glad that God always listens to the prayers of his kids? Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. Now we see Nehemiah quoting Deuteronomy. So this is important. He's a man of the word. Remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. I love Nehemiah's prayers. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making your king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. The beginning of chapter 2 starts with early the following spring in the month of Nisan. This would have been March or April, so we're now four months later. During the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. And that's where the anchor of this message is going to be today. My word for you guys today centers around this four-month window of time. Nehemiah finds out about the sad state of Jerusalem, the fact that while the temple has been rebuilt, Jerusalem itself is in ruins, 
and there's no wall around the city. And as this verse ends, it talks about the king seeing Nehemiah deeply troubled. How many of you have felt troubled before? One of the words that I felt in my spirit as I prepared for this message is there'd be those of you like me at times in my life that have felt stuck. Anybody felt stuck before? I'm in the right room today, I can tell. Maybe you've said to yourself, you want your, li- your life to count, but you're not sure how to make it count. Maybe you've said to yourself recently, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this over and over again. That feeling of conflict, inner discontentment. You know something's got to change, but you don't know what it is. This message is for you today. Or maybe you've recently been making some big steps and God's been moving you along in the timeline of your faith, but you know there's more. You know there are deeper things than God. And this word's also for you. The word that I've taken from this story comes from this four-month period of deliberation and contemplation. And I really believe it echoes so well with so many of us and what we're wrestling with today. And the title of this message is, I Can't Stay Here. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, as I prepared for this, you showed us, you showed me for us that it's time to go that we can't stay where we are. And so I pray, Father, that whatever's been holding us back, whether it's fear, intimidation, relationships, bad experiences, bad church leadership, whatever's been holding us back, Father, we pray today there'd be a divine release, a release into your calling, your purpose, and the destiny you've placed into each and every one of your children. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen. All right, so who is Nehemiah exactly? Uh, We pick his story up when he's already serving in the king's court, so we don't know a whole lot about him before that. But he would have been the rough equivalent of a Holocaust survivor's child, if you can think of it that way. He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. Uh, He was born in Babylonian captivity. And so he's just a slave kid that's now serving as a cupbearer in the king's service. Don't you love the fact that God tends to use average Joes to do big things? There's hope for me, right? (laughs) Um, In this account, we see Nehemiah, we see a lot of things in the person of Nehemiah. And I would tell you, guys, I could could teach a series about eight weeks long minimum on what you get from this 13 chapters, but I I can't. So I'm going to need you to go with me quickly through some of these things. But as I talk through, or as you read through the story, the things that you see in Nehemiah's character are important. He was a very humble guy. Uh, You see moving intercessory prayers that he prays throughout this book. He knew the word. You saw him quoting the scripture in Deuteronomy in the first chapter we read. Uh, You see, to be a cupbearer, you would have had to be trustworthy. He was trustworthy. He also had a deep love and deep compassion for God and his people. He was the cupbearer to the king of Persia, the most dominant empire at the time. So it's, it's not by accident he got this position. He would have been, other than the queen, he would have had the most access to the king. And so kings were a little paranoid in this era, and so they had cupbearers 
to taste their wine and taste their food because then if they dropped dead, the king would go, okay, I will not be eating that. <laughs> and so you can see it's a very high leverage position, right? Uh, this would have indicated strong, upright character and morals. The king literally trusted his life to Nehemiah, a place of great responsibility. So today I want to bring out just a few key takeaways, and trust me, there are many, but I'm just going to focus on three today with you from the account of Nehemiah to get us all moving. We can't stay here, amen? amen. First thing I want to point out from Nehemiah's story is that we see him take responsibility. How many know in the day in which we live, Folks, don't take a lot of personal responsibility. It's much easier to blame someone else, isn't it? So character, good character, one of the primary components of it that you'll find is an ownership of your own responsibility. There are things that we can't change and there's things that we can't affect. Maybe how we were born, where we grew up, circumstances, socioeconomic circumstances, but we all can take personal responsibility for ourselves. Amen? So you see in the, the verse, uh, verses we just read in verse 4, it talks about um, him hearing the words from his brother Hanani and sitting down and weeping and mourning for days and fasting and praying before God. Nehemiah recognizes that something isn't right. He knows that something has to be done. He has a discontentment, compassion mixed with maybe a little irritation. Anybody ever felt that way? Um, something's off, Right? He feels stuck, in my opinion, as he weighs this out. But Nehemiah's never been, he's never taken the 765-mile journey to Jerusalem. He's never been there. He doesn't, at least as far as Scripture records. And he's never met the people there. He doesn't know any of the folks that are currently living in the area. Uh, there was no news broadcast in this day and time. There was no Facebook post. There was no Insta story. Um, he wasn't seeing drone footage of the walls uh, that were torn down. No, all he knew was what his brother told him. And with that simple relaying of communication, it, it planted a seed in Nehemiah's heart. He knew something had to be done. Somebody had to do something. Amen? Amen. What he knew is that without a wall, Jerusalem, and especially the newly rebuilt temple, would never survive right? He knew that. Just to give you some idea of scope, because I wasn't sure. I did some quick research on, like, you know, the, the city of Jerusalem, its size, the size of the walls. Like, what kind of project are we talking about when we talk about Nehemiah building a wall? Um, the wall itself was about two and a half miles around. That's a big wall. Um, and I promise today there will be no build that wall jokes. Um, I guess I just did it, though, so sorry. Um, the wall height would have averaged about 40 feet high and about eight feet thick at its thickest places. So we're not talking about a mamsy-pamsy little wall. This is a defensive mechanism that cities employed to keep bad people out, right? It had 34 watchtowers and seven main gates for traffic. So why was rebuilding the wall so important? We talked about why the temple was so important. Why was building the wall? In this era... Having a wall, not having a wall, rather, around your city was like not having front doors on your house. It would have been like not having law enforcement in your city. What thrives when there's no law? Lawlessness, right? Crime. And so if you can imagine, for 114 years now, Jerusalem has had no walls. 
and all of the neighboring peoples were racists. And so they pillaged Jerusalem, took anything of value out of it after Nebuchadnezzar took it down. If you, if you remember, biblically speaking, how, how were cities defeated in this era? Remember Jericho, the unpenetrable city? What did God do? He took down the walls, and Jericho fell like that. So without walls, there was no security. What, Jer- what Nehemiah knew is that with no walls around the city, the temple's vulnerable. God's presence was vulnerable. You could argue Nehemiah had no reason to accept responsibility for this. God didn't even ask him to do it. And like so many stories in the Bible and accounts we hear, you hear of Adam and of Moses and Noah and Abraham, where God appeared in a burning bush or came in a loud booming voice or sent a heavenly host like to Joseph and Mary. You don't see that with Nehemiah. What, what you see is him hear of the state of Jerusalem and take ownership. He didn't need a word from God. I think sometimes we get stuck in our heads waiting for this big, you know, glory cloud to descend upon us and give us instruction. And sometimes we just need to do what we know is right. Amen? Man, that'll preach. I'm just saying. Um, Dr. Ed Cole says that maturity comes with the acceptance of responsibility. Nehemiah was mature. If you look at Nehemiah, it's uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, you see evidence of his ownership. And I'm not going to read it again, but you see that he says, I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations you gave us through your servant Moses. He doesn't use they and them and those guys. He uses me and we. You see it a little bit further in the story where we we haven't read yet, but it's in chapter 2, verse 17, where he's talking to the city officials in Jerusalem. He says, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. The call to maturity and responsibility is one of ownership. And so... In our daily lives, whether it's the place that we work or maybe the church we attend, sometimes we use words like, well, I wish they would fix this. I wish they would do that. Or when are they going to get around to this? And what I would say to you is let's challenge that lingo. If you work for that organization or if you attend that church, it's what are we going to do about it? What can I do to help? Right? Pathway, we have a journey of, uh, ahead of us that looks impossible, probably much like what Nehemiah was experiencing. It looked impossible to rebuild the walls. They'd been tried for 70 plus years and they hadn't been successful, right? But guess what? If we all take ownership, if we all take responsibility, we can all do it together, right? Because where there is unity, what? God commands the blessing, Unity is in the, in the us, in the we. It's not in the they and the them. Amen? So we see Nehemiah take this enormous responsibility. I love uh, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It's the Great Commission. Sometimes if we don't have a word from God, we just need to look no further than the Great Commission because it's God's word to all of us. And I'm not going to read the entire passage, but Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples. Be a disciple and make them. Yeah. 
And if you know anything about Pathway Church, what we're doing here, it's those two things. Being a disciple, what does that mean? I'm gonna put God's word into action by living the way that Jesus would to the best of my ability. Am I gonna fail? Yep. Is it gonna be perfect? Nope. <laughs> Am I gonna fall another five or six or seven or a hundred times? Most likely. But I'm gonna keep getting up. God's command of us is to go. Be a disciple and then go make some more. That's a good word. Waiting on the Lord doesn't mean sitting around. And I've, I've been guilty of that. How many have been guilty of that before? Like you're waiting for the glory cloud to drop out of the sky and give you the command to go. Waiting, as you've heard, I think Pastor Marty even shared, it's not sitting. Waiting is like you get the picture of a server at a nice restaurant. It's serving. It's giving of yourself to other people un unselfishly. And that's the picture I want you to have. Nehemiah didn't get a word from God, but he took up the burden of God for his people. Second thing that you see frequently in Nehemiah is you see him take it to God in prayer. And so in my work in getting this message inside of this capsule for us, there were some things that had to hit the cutting room floor. And this is the one I struggled with because this is like, it's prayer, God. I can't shorten this point. And God reminded me that we've had several messages on prayer here recently. And so my, my uh, help for you today is in the bonus features section of this message, is if you want to revisit what we know about prayer, what we feel about prayer as a church family, you could look at the wonder of FaceTime, which was the message Pastor Marty preached back in September. Pastor Jessica preached a message in November called Go Boldly. Um, I preached a message in December called Emmanuel in the Battle, spent a good bit of time on prayer. And then in January, as a part of our Forward series, Pastor Marty taught an amazing word on knocking on heaven's door. So now I'm not diminishing the importance of prayer, but I do think it's important for us to understand what role prayer played in Nehemiah's life. So he has the longest recorded prayer recorded in the entire Bible in chapter nine. It spans 32 verses. I'm not gonna read it to you because I don't have that kind of time, but I encourage you to do that. Uh, but it's longer than any of Jesus's recorded prayers. Not that Jesus didn't pray longer prayers, just recorded prayers. But if you look at the book of Nehemiah, there's 14 recorded prayers in Nehemiah and only 13 chapters. So suffice it to say, Nehemiah, his priority, there was a priority placed in his relationship with the Lord in prayer. You also see him quoting the Bible. This wasn't an accident. He had access to the first five books of the Bible. Nehemiah was also a man of the word. And so kind of in summary on this point, if maybe you haven't gotten a word from God, or maybe you feel like you're not hearing God, my challenge to you in all sincerity, with no shame, guilt, or condemnation, is are you reading your word? Are you spending time in prayer? Because if, if you're frustrated and feeling stuck, and you're not spending time with the person that has the answers, then there's a good chance that you could stay there longer than you have to. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you got to go block off two hours if you've never prayed before, okay? Start with five minutes, <laughs> you know? Start with five minutes a day. Start with a scripture a day. But what will happen as you make a place for that, as has been in my experience, is that time suddenly doesn't become quite long enough. And then you stretch to 15 minutes and to 20 minutes. And before you know it, you'll be at a place where you block off an hour and you're at the end of the hour going, gosh, I need more time. That literally has been my experience, and it will be for you, but I had to start somewhere. Yeah. So that's my, 
my challenge for all of you today, start someplace, but make time. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. He studied God's word. My challenge is for you guys to do the same. Amen? Amen. So we've seen Nehemiah take responsibility, take it to God. The next thing, one of the most pivotal parts of this message that I'm going to lean on with all of you today is take a risk. Move. Take a step of faith. I submit to you Newton's first law of motion. Every object in a state of uniform motion will remain in that state of motion unless an external force acts on it, also called inertia. Also, an object that is at rest will stay at rest unless the force acts upon it. So my prayer for you today is may the force be upon you <laughs> to move, <laughs> right? Um, guys, we got to move. What happens when you start moving, though? Momentum. It may take a while to get out of the rut if you've been like me, but once you kind of, once you get things moving, it gets easier to stay in motion, doesn't it? And you pick up a little speed and you accelerate. Anything worth having is worth taking the risk, is worth moving for love, relationships, career, but you got to take a step. You got to make a move. Um, We pick back up in our text And so we have Nehemiah appearing kind of downcast in the presence of the king. This would have been a huge no-no, by the way. Uh, He could have been executed for being sad in the king's court. Luckily, this was a good king, and Nehemiah was close with the king. But he could have, at at a minimum, could could have risked just being thrown into prison or exiled from the king's court. But it speaks to the relationship he had with the king and the favor on Nehemiah's life. And so we pick up the text in chapter 2, verse 2. So the king asked me, why are you looking sad? You don't look sick. Also, if you're a cupbearer, you can't be sick in the king's court. Um, and so if he had likely other cupbearers underneath him that worked with him. Um, so it's kind of funny that the king would mention that. He wouldn't be sick because then he wouldn't be tasting the, the king's wine. But uh, he said, you, you must be deeply troubled then I was terrified. How many have ever been terrified facing needing to take the step? All right? Nehemiah, man full of faith, man of God, man of the word. He was terrified, okay? But it, he replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? The king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, you see Nehemiah, here's another one of his prayers, a quick one. We call it arrow prayers. How many do those occasionally? Lord, help me, you know. Um, Help me with this test or help me not kill this person that cut me off, you know, whatever the case is. But he fires up an arrow prayer with a prayer to God of heaven. I replied, if it please the king and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need to make beams for the gates of the temple, fortress, 
fortress for the city walls and a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. There's several principles here, uh, but I want to outline a couple of them. First of all, I want to address Nehemiah's fear. As I mentioned in my last message, our human emotions aren't wrong, but it is what we do with them that matters. Anger is not wrong as long as we, we figure out what's the source of it and how can I adjust to make that, make that adjustment in me to, to carry on with what, my, what the point of that anger is? In other words, you see in, in this passage, for instance, Nehemiah is terrified. He has fear, but it's what fear drives him to do. Fear, in this case, drives him to appear downcast in the presence of the king, knowing that that would invoke the king's question also knowing that it could cost him his life because he didn't know, right? But courage is not the absence of fear. It's moving forward in spite of it. I'm going to say that again. Courage is not the absence of fear. Fear's still there. But courage looks at fear and says, I'm going on in spite of you. Nehemiah's calling and purpose overrode his fear. The fear of missing his destiny, perhaps, helped him override his fear. He took a risk. He took action. And then this is something I want you to really hear from me. This is what he received. And I worked really hard on making these four Ps, so I want you to be very impressed, okay? (laughs) First, he received permission from the king. When you have the king's permission, you receive his blessing. You receive his favor. So you see him receive power from the king in the form of the king's letters that granted him access to, these, to, to the woods, to the timber that he needed, to the resources that he needed, these letters that Nehemiah took with him. You see him get passport. So the king sent his cavalry as a security escort to make sure that Nehemiah was kept safe. When you take steps and risk for God, he'll escort you, right? And he received the king's provision financial resources, timber, manpower. So when he gives you permission, he'll always give you power, passport, and provision. Amen? Amen. I personally believe that King Cyrus is a type of the Lord Jesus, a type of the Father God, because of this passage specifically. Because if you look at this example, Jesus always gives you everything that you need to fulfill the assignment that you take on under him. Amen? Amen? God took a slave kid, and after he took the risk, he empowered him and gave him favor to be a a contractor, to be a leader, a motivational speaker, right? And ultimately a governor for the city of Jerusalem. This is another section I didn't have time to spend a a lot on, but I really think it's important that you understand when you take risks for God, you're going to encounter opposition, Amen. Anybody ever experienced opposition when you make a declaration, hey, God, I'm, I'm with you, and then all of a sudden it feels like the floodgates open? It's not just me, right? <laughs> um, just in this story, and I'll just kind of give you the, the quick overview. Remember, 
The nations surrounding Jerusalem were racist. They hated the Jews. If you look in verse 10 of chapter 2, it says, of course, you, you know, these, these guys have villainous-sounding names, but Samballot, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite. Could you be any more evil than those names suggest? <laughs> uh, heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. Of course they were, because there were no walls, and they could go in and out anytime they wanted to, right? But in this book, if you will, of Nehemiah, what you see from these from these villains, they, they, you see them accuse Nehemiah of rebelling against King Cyrus. You see them hurl insults at them, and they had no trash talk game whatsoever. Because the, the one scripture that they, you hear Tobias shouting to Nehemiah, hey, if a fox ran on your wall, it would fall down. <laughs> and I imagine Nehemiah looking up for a second going, that's the best you got. <laughs> right back to work. Uh, you see, Samballot flying to a rage. He mocked the Jews. They threatened to come fight them and cause confusion. They tried to lure Nehemiah into defiling the temple in fear. They tried to lure him out into out of the city. So as it was nearing completion, they tried four times to get Nehemiah to come out of the city and meet with them. All right, biblical principle number one, never go meet the enemy on their territory on their terms, right? And... Coincidentally, the plains that they wanted him to meet in were the plains of Ono. All right. If, if you get asked at any point in your life to go visit the plains of Ono with your enemy, say no. Okay. It's not hard. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, they should have picked another place. I'm just saying. You know? All right. The last point I want to cover with you today. So we've, we've taken responsibility. We've taken it to God. You see Nehemiah take a risk. Lastly, you see Nehemiah take his place. You have to take your place in God's story. There you go. there, I, love, I love how God, in all of his infinite wisdom, over the annals of time, is so strategic in where he drops in words for seasons and how diligent he is to fulfill them on time. And so I want to point to a few prophecies that prophesied what we just talked about. First is Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says, You'll be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I'll come and do for you all the good things I promised. I will bring you home again. Isaiah 44.26. It talks about, carrying on the predictions of the prophets. But I say to Jerusalem, people will live here again, and to the towns of Judah, you will be rebuilt. This is 140 years before the temple was demolished, by the way. You will be rebuilt. I will restore all your ruins. When I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will certainly do as I say. He will command, rebuild Jerusalem. He will say, restore the temple. 140 years, folks. Cyrus wasn't born yet. Okay? That would be like, predicting the presidency of Obama or Trump in like 1860, okay? That's kind of to put it on the, on the spectrum. That is something only God could do. Haggai talks about getting the wood to build the house. Zechariah talks about the temple being built. This is 75 years before Ezra and Nehemiah come on the scene. 
The point I want to make with all this is that God had determined the story. But did you see Nehemiah's name in any of those passages? Nehemiah had a choice. He had a choice to step into God's story. Keep in mind, Nehemiah is in the, the catbird seat. He's in the palace of the most powerful kingdom that there is. He's got favor with the king. He, he can eat the best food, drink the best wine. He's got people that work underneath him. He is comfortable, okay? How many have been comfortable before and God asked you to do something? Right? But Nehemiah had to choose. He had to choose to look at the comfort of the palace and go, this is my assignment. I've got to leave the comfort of the palace, and I've got to take a risk. I've got to put myself into God's story. If Nehemiah hadn't, we would never have heard of him. But guess what? God's word would have been fulfilled, right? God would have found somebody else. And the challenge I would issue to all of you today is don't get passed over. God has a story with your name on it. And no matter what you've done or what you've been through, it's not invalidated. God can always pick up where you let him put you in the story. Amen? Amen. Nehemiah had to choose to move to be a part of God's plan. But God still would have done it regardless. And I think if, if he had chosen not to take that risk, there'd been obviously a very different outcome in the story. Guys, if you get nothing else out of what I've said today, I want you to really hear me on this. God has a specific, divine, unique purpose for every person in this building. Amen. You can't invalidate it. I don't care what's happened to you. I don't care how much life has kicked you down. I don't care what hand you've been dealt. You have a story to be written. Nehemiah was just a layman. He was just a slave kid. He wasn't a prophet or a priest or some king or high official, but he found favor with God because he was diligent. There was a story I heard about Billy Graham one time I thought was, was appropriate. He was caught outside of a meeting by a reporter one time, and the reporter asked him, Reverend Graham, I've heard a great many preacher a lot better than you. What makes you so special that God would use you? And as you can only imagine, Billy Graham would reply. He said, sir, when I get to heaven, that's the first question I'm going to ask the Lord. <laughs> Humility looks good on us, doesn't it? But God has a plan for all of us. I don't care what your station in life is. One of the last things I wanted to, to, to bring in front of you, and I'm not going to read it, I just want to reference it, but it's in, if you read Nehemiah through chapter 3, the entire chapter references who built the wall. What I loved in the story of God taking care to take an entire chunk of scripture and dedicating it to the names of the people and the families who built the wall is that these families all chose to be a part the names of who didn't participate didn't show up here. But you, you see the high priests and other priests start to rebuild the sheep gate. You see the leader of the Mizpah district, so a city official, 
rebuilding the gate, the fountain gate. You see a group of Levites working under the supervision of, of one family. You see a leader of the half district of Keilah supervising the building of the wall on behalf of his own district. You see temple servants helping rebuild the wall. You see goldsmiths rebuilding the wall. You see merchants rebuilding the wall. And they're naming them all by names and names of their family. The point is, we all have an opportunity. And Pathway, I'm talking to you today, because I knew this would be summer, and so there might be a few extra people at the lake this weekend. But for you guys, it is time to step into God's story. It's time to take ownership and responsibility. It's time to step into leadership positions. It's time to, to act and to move. Amen. Nehemiah 4, 6 says, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Men and women from all walks of life, vocations, social classes, backgrounds, set their mind to work. They had supernatural favor and provision. What hadn't been able to be accomplished in over 70 years somehow was completed in just 52 days. That wall that I referenced earlier, the size, eight foot thick, 40 foot high, two and a half miles around, how does that happen in 52 days with a bunch of unskilled labor? Right? <laughs> Nehemiah 6, 15 through 16 says, so on October 2nd, the wall was finished, just 52 days after we'd begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. Pathway, we have a mission. When we step into God's story, we surrender to his plan, we'll see it accomplished, and the enemies and the naysayers and the people who, who don't have our best interests at heart will be humiliated and scattered. Amen? Amen? We have a responsibility. And I kind of found this interesting in the symmetry of the story. Whereas in Nehemiah's story, it took 52 days. We're roughly 52 weeks away from our, our new facility and the ministry that's supposed to happen there. But this is the church, you guys. If we'll commit to build ourselves between now and then, I promise you, many of you will be stepping into leadership positions. You'll be stepping into staff positions. You'll be stepping into God's story in a way that only God can write. But you have to start moving. Like Marty said last week, you've got to move it, move it. All right, I'm not going to dance like he did. <laughs> we got to move it, right? We have to simply do what Nehemiah did. We have to mix God's super with our natural. And it becomes supernatural. But we can't stay where we are, right? Amen. All right. In closing, I'm going to wrap this all up for you. I, I've, I labored over this a little bit, but God made it so clear I was supposed to share this with you. It's a little bit personal for me. But back in October... Um, I was going through a really bad stuck place, and I was struggling. 
not so much with my faith in God, but just, I was just in a spot where I just didn't know what am I supposed to do next? Like what, what more is there? And I began to spend time talking and praying with, with my wife and with my good friend, Mike Mitchell. And one day in worship, God gave Mike a vision for me. And it was the catalyst that got me unstuck. And I, I felt like God showed me during my study of this word for you today that he wants me to give you this vision for you, for all of you. And so I'm going to kind of hit the bullet points of this vision. And as I do, I want you to, to put yourself in this story, okay? Will you do that for me? So close your eyes. I need you to use your holy imaginations. Imagine you're moving up a ledge on an upward incline on top of a very high elevation building. You recognize that it's time to, it's time to turn the corner around the building, but around the corner is a strong headwind, so you can't look around it. You just have to step around it in faith. And you know that once you do, there is no turning back. You've been protected from that headwind that's whipping by the building to this point. And there's a hesitation for a few minutes there, anxiousness and concern, because you recognize that once you take this step, it's all in. You realize the seriousness that there's no going back. You want to look around the corner first, but there's literally no way to do that. You try to process, understand, and analyze everything first. Am I the man or woman for this? Can I handle this? Do I even have what it takes? Because once you step around this corner, there's no backing up and there's no going back. Because if you tried to, the wind would blow you off the ledge. You realize that this step is about faith and trusting him that he's put you right here, right now, right here for this time. He is equipping you and will be equipping you. We work in addition. God works in laws of multiplication. In this next season, while there may be greater resistance in the wind, there will be a greater result in multiplication. The greater the investment, the greater the increase. There is no increase without investment. This will require new equipment, more prayer, hearing the Holy Spirit and knowing that you hear him. There will be no fake it until you make it. Trust that when you step out, God is already there and he's got you. I want to take us back to the beginning of our time today in this passage of scripture. During this four-month window of time where Nehemiah heard the word and had to wrestle with it for four months. He had to pray. He had to seek God. He had to consider where he was and consider where he was going. Why did Nehemiah take this risk? Why did he leave the comfort of the palace and risk his life? Why would you leave the comfort of where you are for this mission of God? Why would you do that? I can tell you why Nehemiah did it. Love. Love for God. Love for God's people. Love for God's city. I was doing some final reading this week as I was preparing, and I thought this was so amazing. I shared it with Pastor James and Colin this week. 
If you look at the Jewish calendar, Kislev, which is where this text starts, the root word means trust and hope. But it also appears on the Jewish calendar during Hanukkah, which is literally the end of the lunar month when the nights have virtually no moonlight. The darkest possible part of the year. How many know the deepest darkness sets the stage for the greatest possible revelation of light? Then as we see Nehemiah step into and take this risk in front of the king, it's now Nisan, which for the Jewish people is known as the month of miracles. And the root word, Nisanu, actually means to move or to start. And so that's what I'm kind of prophesying over all of us today. It's time to move. What does that look like, Pastor Mark? It's going to look different for all of us. Bow your heads with me, if you will. I'll have you stand in a moment. But in this moment, maybe, maybe you have heard what I've said today and you can resonate with that stuck feeling, but you're stuck in a place where you feel far from God. You feel like not only can you not hear him, but you don't even think he's listening to you. Maybe you feel hopeless, but we sang today about the living hope. And so if that's you today and you recognize that you've got to make a move, that you can't stay there where you are, that it's time to go, it's time to press in to the Lord, if you just slip your hand up, I want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Many hands. Thank you. Just pray this, some semblance of this prayer with me. Father, I love you. I'm sorry for my past. I can't go back and fix it, but you can cover it. So I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I ask you to make the crooked places straight in my heart. I give you all I am and look forward to what you can make of the rest of my life with you as my Savior, my friend. In Jesus' name. If you'll stand with me now.